0: so much for tuning into the Arts District Podcast. I am your host, Sterling Shay, and you are about to hear my conversation with producer Bren Rapp. She's giving us a lot of insight into the life of being a Broadway producer and will tell us about the Small Change Big Help initiative that she has launched. Really quick... Before we start, I want to say a huge thank you to Shakespeare in the Bar. They gave us a very significant sponsorship so that we could keep recording during this crazy pandemic. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Shakespeare in the Bar. And if you'd like to know how you can help us during these uncertain times, go to the link in the bio of our Instagram page and click become a patron. Okay. Here is Bren Rap. Hello, Bren, and welcome to Arts District. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Um, will you tell me about yourself and how you came to be a producer? It's oh, a really long story,
1: but I'll give you the cliff notes version. That's, yeah, take uh, your
0: time. Take us through all of it.
1: I uh, started my career. Um, in sports actually high revenue sports and entertainment and i worked for six years for a guy named jb bernstein and if he sounds familiar he was the subject of the movie the million dollar arm that disney did with um john ham and he was known for being kind of a new age marketing agent um And his clients included Emmett Smith, Barry Bonds, um, Barry Sanders, a lot, a lot of big names. And so I kind of cut my teeth there and then moved on to the team side of things and was working with some of the biggest names in the NBA and the NFL, bringing them into the digital age, basically. And, um, I have a son. And as I was doing all that, I was missing a great portion of his life because I was all over the place. So I I stopped um, after Barry Bonds hit his big famous Home Run King Home Run. And I came back to Dallas and I had um, double majored in theater and political science at SMU and mm-hmm. had always acted as youth. And so I ended up, taking a job at a at a children's theater so I could spend more time with my kid. Mm-hmm. And I could bring him. And there I met a guy named Jeff Swearingen, um, who is probably one of the most talented guys in the city. And um, after a couple of years of me coaxing him, uh, we started our own company. And it was called Funhouse Theater and Film. And, um, it kind of took off and this is going to sound really odd for the person who did it to say, but it's kind of true. It became sort of this phenomenon because what we were doing is we were doing theater for adults that happened to have children acting in it. Okay. So it was a way of giving kids a kind of acting training that they weren't getting um, but it was also working on two levels with the audience and kind of this Pixar sort of way where kids could enjoy it, but adults were getting a lot out of it. We did things like, um, I would come up with concepts and Jeff would write, uh, we did Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, but it was called Daffodil Girls and it was with Girl Scouts and it became a huge thing. We had to bring it back twice. Um, we did a school bus named Desire. Um, we did, yes, Virginia Wolf. There is a Santa Claus, which was a, <laughs> a, a show. And basically the reason why we did it was to teach these kids those styles of acting. Um, you can't learn super realism acting in productions of Peter Pan. Um, there's a place for everything, but these were for kids who wanted to work professionally And they probably did more American standards with us than most theaters do. That's neat. Uh, But they were all through these really wild adaptations. And then, you know, Jeff and I produced 25 original works in seven years. Wow. So new work development sort of became a niche of mine. And after producing all of that, onward I went. So... um, Next project after that, uh, was a one man show about Lenny Bruce that, uh, Joey Folsom here in town brought to me. Mm-hmm. And our idea with that one was I'm always trying to tackle something. And so I was tackling the fact that it seemed like Dallas was really good at bringing in other people's work, but not getting our actors and things out there. And so Joey and I on our own did a major market tour of that show. Um, Chicago, L.A., New York, um, and, of course, Dallas. And we also wanted to bring it to audiences who didn't necessarily go to the theater. And because it was Lenny Bruce, it gave us a way to do that, and he went into comedy clubs with a scripted piece of theater, a mm-hmm. 45-minute piece of theater. We played Second City in Chicago for five nights. Um, we went to burlesque houses and did it. Um, so it was really, it was an interesting experience. And then through all of that, I actually met Lenny Bruce's daughter who hooked me up with a man named Ronnie Marmo in LA. And Ronnie was doing his own one man show (laughs) about Lenny Bruce. And he actually had Lenny's actual material in the show through Kitty and Ronnie and I got friendly and I ended up producing, um, his off Broadway run of that show. With him and Joe Montaigne was the director, and so I got to work with Joe, which was amazing. And we had originally set out to do a six week run off Broadway, and we're there for nine months. So. It was pretty incredible. And somewhere during that time, too, I brought uh, Jessica Cavanaugh's Self-Injurious Behavior mm-hmm. to um, New York for an Actors' Equity Association showcase. And then we rolled, premiered it out in LA with um, Ronnie and Joe Mantegna signing on as executive producers. So it's wow. a long, I mean, it's a long and twisted tale that's probably like, why is she telling us all this? You would just but, like... You know,
0: yeah, like bouncing all over the country. <laughs> yeah,
1: and you know, one thing builds on another. I had mm-hmm. I had the great fortune of working with Terry Loftus here in town, who has been nominated for two Tony's and now heads up Taca. And um he helped me take one of Jeff Swearingen's works um to uh Axer's Equity Association showcase in New York. And then we started uh on another show um, called Living Over the Rainbow, uh, which is a a new musical. And we had a a, um, workshop of it here, actually, with Uptown Players, and Terry Martin directed it. And, um, you know, all of those things, though, all those things in the works kind of at the moment. So, you know, we just kind of do what you can. But, you know, I've always been... um, hate to say this word, but aggressive in Mm -hmm. that because of all the sports work that I did Mm -hmm. and because of who I work for, um, I've had a philosophy of no does not mean no. It only means you haven't told your story well enough Mm -hmm. yet. So, you know, I've kind of been, had the reputation of, um, just taking things on, head on and part of the success of funhouse was we came out of the gate both developing things creatively but developing the company and the brand marketing wise at the same time in a way that hadn't been done mm-hmm. here before um and it it worked um and so since then i you know i've done a lot of marketing consulting with other groups um just really trying to get theaters to think a little bit outside the box of, okay, yes, this is the way theater has always done this, but maybe it's not the way that's going to work the best anymore.
0: Right.
1: Um, I think that may be a blessing in disguise with everything that's going on now with so many theaters turning towards streaming, which is something they probably should have already done. Um to bring in audiences there should there should have been these things developed all along because yes You want to go see theater live, but that's not how people consume Yeah aim it anymore Mm -hmm. so That was a big lesson for me I did
0: a tour with missoula children's theater and we were going to towns with 75 people in them where You know they had their little like town community theater that like the parents did but I was like, these kids want to see Hamilton. Like these kids yeah. want to see Broadway shows and that's only yeah. going to happen if someone like puts it on online.
1: Yep. And one, one thing I learned um, from a lot of people I've talked to in New York who are Broadway producers is so much of their revenue comes from things like cast recordings, and things they're dropping Mm -hmm. on YouTube or other places that people never set foot in the theater to see it because of the price point, quite frankly. Uh, A lot of people can't, Um, and yet it's fueling it. It's it's building an audience for them for a work that people haven't even laid eyes on. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, picking those things up, like I see what's happening now and I'm like, you know, it may not be such a bad thing, that theaters and other arts organizations are having to be a little more digitally focused right now. And it's also a tremendous opportunity for Dallas to get our work in front of the country without geographic boundaries. I mean, it's such an opportunity to pick up audiences from everywhere. There's no geographic barrier anymore. Um, so in a way, I think it can all become a positive in, in a, maybe a shift in mindset a little bit, but I think you have to be willing to look at it that way, which is tough. I mean, it's really tough, especially when you're hurting economically. Um, it's really tough to try to think about, oh, the future of this when it's just like, can we even keep the door open? Yeah. Um, so that's the long and twisted (laughs) version of the tale. but you know, it's been it's been interesting because I I believe in all the places I've been and work that I've seen, Dallas pound for pound can go toe to toe with what's out there. Um, I've seen it. I've seen it happen. I've brought it places where people didn't have name recognition or anything, and the work was good enough to do that with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I believe in it in a way that people who are just here saying, oh, I love my community. Yeah, that's great. But I believe in it in a way that, yeah, I know what's out there. And it's not just that you love them. This is good. There, There's a lot of talent here. And there is a lot of good work coming out of here. Yeah. Um, and it's important. Um, it's really important that it's cultivated, but it's important that it's shared. Yeah. too. It's very important. That it
0: That's great. I love that you have a sports background. Who is your uh, who's your team?
1: Um, sadly, the New York Jets are my football team. Okay, <laughs> so I'm a glutton for punishment. There, a Yankees fan. Um, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan because of the work I did for Bonds. Okay. Um, Basketball wise, I've always been a Celtics fan. Um, so I've kind of bounced around. It it's interesting, you know, when you start working for certain athletes, you obviously get an affection for their team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But also when you work for the industry as a whole, like I went through a whole period of time where I couldn't just sit, and enjoy a game. Like I was looking, you know, because I was on the sponsorship end and the digital end, you know, I was looking around. And I'm like, "Oh, that's a dumb sign. That's not going to do anything." That you know, I'm looking to see what who's advertising on the field. And, yes, and that's and so things funny. are happening. So, I kind of took some of the joy away, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. So,
0: I'm a uh, I'm a Packers fan. My oh, there yeah, you go. By birth, because my dad got my name from Sterling Sharp. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Legend has it. Like he was on the cover of sports illustrated in the lobby of the hospital. And my dad was like, we're doing this. <laughs> oh, that um,
1: is the greatest ever. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and, yeah. um, uh, but yeah, so I started working, I'm an event coordinator and a brand specialist for a sports bar. So sports is like just recently yeah. become a much bigger part of my life. And yeah, it was such a benefit to my acting career to work in branding and publicity. Oh, exactly.
1: And that's the whole point I was trying to make is that when I got back involved in theater here in Dallas, that's the perspective I took. Yeah. And it was so different than having gone to school for theater. And all yeah. this time. I, I mean, I looked at it with a set of eyes like, okay, and I still believe this to this day, the playwright is the commodity. Like that work, like yes. for new work development, that is the commodity I'm dealing in. Yeah. And, you know, what Jeff and I did, which was amazing is because it was from concept all the way to stage is as he was developing it, we were tailoring it for how it was going to be marketed. Mm-hmm. So marketing and and the spin and and why people would want to watch it and all of these things became part of the development, and that just kind of led itself to me producing new work because somebody having that eye on it while the creative is doing what the creative does really makes a difference for yeah. what ends up on stage and in a producing sense makes a difference of what you can raise money for. You have yeah. to you have to be able to tell people what you're doing. Um, and I find that a lot of artists have a hard time with that. They can't give you the two minute elevator pitch of what their play is because they're so involved in it. You know, they're going to go on and on and tell you all these things and intricacies and this and that. And from an investment standpoint, when you're talking about commercial entertainment, somebody just wants to tell you, wants you to tell them, okay, this is why this is going to make money. And that's a very hard thing to do with art. Um, and it's, it, it's a interesting skill to develop. So I think that's really fascinating with you and the branding. I I think, um, I think that gives you an edge. I I really do. I really do. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's definitely paid off with the podcast because yeah. I mean, I can't I can't do. I lost my job as an event coordinator because we can't do live events. Yeah. All of my acting gigs are getting pushed yeah. back, pushed back, pushed back. Um and I'm like, "Well, thank God I started an audio medium before all of this yeah. happened."
1: Yep. Yeah, it it's funny. It's really weird how things Work out. You know, it's very weird. I'm a big believer in that too. I'm just like, and a lot of it is just going with it. I mean, I wish I could say, like, oh, I sat down and had a plan. Yeah. I just went with what was coming my way. And I'm like, all right, let's see what we can do with this. And um, you look back and there's a whole career.
0: Well, what does a normal day, aside from quarantine, what does a normal day look like for a producer?
1: Well, um, I can tell you kind of where I was at the end of last year mm-hmm. and you know, there was a point last year where I had, um, the Lenny Bruce show going in New York. So they were running, I had two shows off Broadway at the same time. And that was literally all, you know, um, marketing PR, reaching out to people, press releases, interviews, um, finding ways to get audiences in, um, working with Ronnie Marmo was incredible because he's the only person I've ever worked with who's matched my energy level. So it was nonstop um, for nine months. Um, There was a point, I would say, the show opened before Thanksgiving and there was a point in December where we took took control of everything without the big PR agency and the marketing agency and all that when we decided to keep extending the show. So I, I can't even tell you on that level of trying to keep something open and an audience in, in New York for nine months. Yeah. What that entails, but it's a lot. I was doing the website. Um, we were constantly on social media. I mean, and that's still a large part of my day. So it is... Mm-hmm. Whoever I'm working with, and at times it's been up to you know five, six people, I'm managing all their social media. I'm yeah. doing all these things. So that was, that's a large part of it. But you know, I kind of slowed down at the end of last year. And in February, I was just beginning to pick up um, some projects. And so all of those things were in the works. Um, I run a film company, Um, with Joey Folsom and we had a script that got really hot and um, we're meeting with some major studios in Los Angeles in the studio system about the script and all that just stopped because production stopped on everything. So pretty hard to sell a film when nobody's making them. Uh, So it's been an odd because so much of what I do is entrepreneurial and project-based and it's just really hard to even fathom developing projects right now mm-hmm. um, because there is so much uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely, and then you, like you said, things are put on hold, things are pushed back. Um, so it, it's been, it's been really interesting. Um, you know, a lot of my days and, and, you know, the ugly side of producing and the not fun side of producing is most of the times you're asking for money. It's sales. You're you're trying to fund projects. Um, What producing is. And, you know, as much as it's like, oh, that's so glamorous, it's a producer. It's a whole lot of being told no. Mm -hmm. I I, I mean, it is a whole lot of being told no. For every yes, you probably get 500 no's. So, Yeah. I would say that. I would say my day is pretty much being told no um and you know you just keep digging for the yes. Yeah.
0: Well tell us about small change
1: big help. Yeah. So, you know, when all of this went down, I a lot of people began to reach out to me because again, you know, I'm kind of known for being able to, you know, help with funding or
0: you know these
1: things and as these people sort of started piecemeal reaching out to me, I was like, okay, well, this is something I can do with my talent, my time, is help people. Um, And so I started to do it. But what I found was a lot of companies in the same boat and a system that wasn't necessarily built to help them. Um, You know, I started to research through these grant databases relief funding. And all of these national relief funds consider a small arts organization to be somebody with a budget of $250,000. And I'm like, okay, Mm. no, that's not these people. Um, A lot of the local assistance has been great, but it's an overburdened system. Um, You know, there is a, a pool of patrons and arts donors here who thankfully are so gracious and generous with giving money, but it's, it's a finite pool of people and, you know, the, the foundational support, it's over it was overburdened to begin with. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about an overburdened system. You're talking about large organizations who have staffs of people dedicated to development and writing grants and these things, who can still function to do that, to get the relief they need, but these smaller organizations don't have the infrastructure to spend all day, every day, trying to get funding. Um, So that was, you know, I was noticing these things, and I was like, okay, but there's got to be some power in all of them getting together and going directly to the people for help. Mm -hmm. Um, they all service particular niches as far as the audiences who come to see them. Well, what if all of those audiences combined and just gave a little bit, that was basically the whole thought process that I had was this could be something where a little bit can make a big impact. These are not organizations that run buildings. Yeah. Uh, They're not organizations that have large payrolls full of people These are people that you can give $5 to and feel and know that it's going to end up on stage with what you're seeing. It's going to go really to what the cores of these missions of these people are. And it's not going to take a lot because, again, they don't have to worry about rent of buildings. They don't have to worry about a huge staff of people To run operations that really don't have to do with what the audience is ultimately seeing on Mm -hmm. the stage, And um, I just saw that maybe there was an opportunity to combine them and help. Um, So what I did was I think I put out a call on social media um, with what the requirements were and the requirements were the, their budgets had to, be under $100,000 a year that um, they could not operate a performance facility. They had to have zero to five people on a permanent payroll. um, And they had to have an average ticket price of less than $25. Um, And most of them come in way, way under that. Yeah. Um, But to me, that, that sort of defined what a small independent performing arts organization was. So there was a great response. Um, A couple I went out to that I knew um, because what I also wanted to do was get a good cross-section of people. I wanted it to be inclusive. I didn't want it to be, I didn't even want it to be a certain type of performing art. So we have dance, we have classical music, um, all sorts of theater,
0: um,
1: devised work, um, classic work, Shakespeare, you name it, we have a gamut of it because I want there to be the feel of, all right, everyone is helped. But at the same time, it's not like, oh, well, I'm going to give money to these people because this is what I identify with or I like this particular type of work. I want it to, to be more of, no, this is for your entire community if you give. This is for everyone, for everyone is included. Everyone has a voice. Everyone is seeing something they relate to. Um, So that was the thought process. Um, The challenge I'm having now and that I'm facing head on is moving outside of the arts to get people who are not necessarily arts patrons to also understand the unemployment rate among working artists right now is 70%. This is people's livelihoods, just like everybody else we're talking about in the economy. It's the same situation. These are professional artists and they can't go and book work and get commercials and all the things they normally do to pay their bills while also making art because that's dried up too. Mm-hmm. So you know I I that's the message I'm trying to bring outside of the arts community is this is the same story as other industries are facing that you're willing to help. Like mm-hmm. it, it doesn't come down to is this essential or not? Because obviously people staying healthy and being fed and all those kind of things are, are really yeah. essential. Yeah. But, um, it's essential. It's essential to those people. It's their livelihood. It's their jobs. They have families. They have all these other things that everybody else is concerned about. They're the same. Yeah. Uh, so I've had some great support. I had the voice of the Dallas Cowboys make a post for me. It's awesome. I had the Dallas Mavericks make a post for me. Um, so you know, I've been I've been trying to uh, play every card I can. Um, but it really, I think it will really come down to the arts community. And yeah. like I said, about small giving. Um, uh, if everyone that was in the social media reach of these groups gave five dollars we'd hit our goal. If everyone gave two, we would get extremely close. Yeah. This is not, you know, I think that's another thing that prohibits people sometimes from getting involved is they feel like I can't write a big enough check. I can't be the person that comes in and writes the, you know, even a hundred dollars. I can't be the patron. I can't be on that list you see of donors who have donated at least this much and get to be called you know, the silver circle or, you know, whatever they call people. And I think it's discouraging um, to some people because they feel like they can't make a difference. But I think because of the nature of these organizations, every little bit helps.
0: Right. And it's so Uh, true that, like, um, $300 to an organization like that means so much more than, like, a large Lord's Theater. Exactly. If if I'm, I'm, like, if I had $300... I could get two more mics, start Mm -hmm. doing group interviews, and that would totally
1: change the podcast. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So you're a perfect example. You're a perfect example. And I'm going to go ahead and send a shout out to everybody servicing the arts community needing help (laughs) right now too, because, you know, what are you going to do? You got to cover stuff. (laughs) But what are you going to cover? You know, how are you? So I feel your pain. Um, But no, that's exactly my point is you know, the other thing is, yes, it's uncertain how we're going to be performing and who's going to be seeing it and when that's going to happen. But that shouldn't be a deterrent either because what these people need is something in the bank. Mm-hmm. So when that happens, they're right in there with the big dogs doing their work. Yeah, um, back, back to because, normal. Yeah. yeah, because these organizations, and I don't know if people really understand this, what they make off of one production gets rolled into the next thing, gets rolled into the next thing. And this is how they're surviving and living. They're not stashing away large amounts of profit from, you know, huge houses of ticket sales. They're literally going from thing to thing, paying artists, you know? And that's what they're trying to do. And so when a show gets canceled, that could can be what shuts their door because they can't go on to the next thing, or the next thing, that's it. The game's over if they're not bringing anything in. Right. Um, and they also don't have these cultivated donor bases that bigger organizations can take time and years and throw galas and do all of these things to develop. They don't have the people to call on the phone and be like, okay, um, we're in trouble, give us $10,000. It's yeah, it's not there. Um, So that was basically the thought really behind it all. And um, they've been so generous, all these organizations too, in being part of a collective and not just going out there with an every man for themselves sort of attitude. Um, Sharing if they have donors, sharing their donors with these other groups, giving things away so people will donate. Mm -hmm. Um, Really having a sense of community community within themselves, which has been sharing, sharing things, um, that I post mm-hmm. about other organizations, which is a great opportunity too to build audience. Um, so hopefully that helps when things get back to normal as well. Um, but yeah, it, it, it seems simple enough to me yeah. that you can do something small, it can make a big difference. And if we all did that small thing, all of these companies would be okay.
0: Do you happen to have a list
1: of yes. these? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. And I'm, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about each one as I know it. This yeah, is that would be great. Edition, whatever um, And it's alphabetized, so it doesn't seem like I'm... Perfect. My all right. The first one is um, Altered Shakespeare. Yes. They have and an rel- interview with us. Yes. They are relatively new. Yeah. But I love what they do because it's all about bringing Shakespeare to the people in places you wouldn't think, um, doesn't cost a lot of money for you to go see them. And they also um, are wonderfully inclusive on their casting, which I love to see with Shakespeare's work. Um, they're imaginative, um, they'll swap genders, they're not, you know, bound by racial boundaries of, oh, you know, this has gotta be a British white guy. Yeah. Um, so it's been it's been fun to watch them, um, and I love the excitement and the energy and the kind of bodiness that they bring to the whole thing. I think that's great. Yeah. So they're one um, Danielle Georgeo Dance Group, which Danielle does such amazing work, and she's partnered with a lot of big theaters. And um, again, super imaginative. I I I can't even describe. It's her own brand of what she does. Right. Um, but it, it, it there's really no other way to describe it. But it's what she does.
0: Yeah. Uh, they've been great about like immediately pivoting to virtual stuff. Oh well,
1: because they're they've always been forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And but that's also an advantage of these smaller groups is they can be agile like that. She doesn't have a board of directors. She has to go to and convince 12 people and go through this red tape before she can put something on the internet. Right. And that's part of the advantage of being independent yeah. is the kind of work you can do. So they're great. Dead white zombies. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but wow. They have been around for a long time. It is very hard to explain what they do. It's okay. a really brilliant man named Thomas Riccio their last show, for instance, started at a, a taco place, and then you followed it through 15 different locations. and It was a small group of people at a time who went to each of these locations. It's all um, interactive. It's, uh, you got to hit their website. It, I mean, just they're wild. Um, that sounds amazing. Oh, oh, yeah. Theater as,
0: as you said, as tacos as. in my mouth. Yes, dropped, yeah. dropped it <laughs> that,
1: and, and it's just one thing they've done. That's, That's just awesome. like that pops into my mind. But this man has traveled the world, actually, helping indigenous people record the stories of their cultures. Wow. And, and, and Dead White Zombies is this amazing group. It, it, it defies explanation, seriously. Okay. Um, I'm writing, I'm writing their, their name down. Yes, please, please. Um, Denise Lee on stage. Um, Denise has acted in just about every kind of thing you can act in, in every place in the city, but she's dedicated to bringing the cabaret arts to Dallas. Um, she has a cabaret series that features our best cabaret artists, but she also does the, um, annual Dallas Cabaret Festival, which is a nationally known festival now. And, um, it's going into its sixth year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, that's a very um, intimate, inclusive type of performance. Um, normally, you know, made up of American standards. It's it's not an American art form, but it's so truly yeah. ours. Um, and it's a wonderful experience for people to go and have a drink and hear jazz. And, you know, um, I've been to a couple of the performances of the Cabaret series, and they're great. Um, so she's one. Then Flexible Gray Theater Company. Um, I think they're going into their fourth season. They're um, LGBTQ company with a focus on, and this is their words, not mine, the millennial generation. Okay. <laughs> so um, they're really catering their work to things that are relatable to that segment. Okay. Doing um, it in ways that are relatable. Their last show, which unfortunately the run got interrupted by all of this, was in a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. Um the play was about had a coffee shop as a locale. Um so they do some really interesting work, new works. Um so and and in an intimate kind of way. Cool. So they're really interesting. Um giant entertainment, on the other hand, uh they're LGBTQ, but they are all about big, all about Broad, all about fun, all about mixing film and, and theater and da- everything. Um, nice. Yeah, they uh, they recently did something with the Elevator Project that was amazing out in the fountain in front of the AT and T Performing Arts Center. Like they're they're great, um, but they think big. Uh, yeah. They're a little company that thinks really really big, and it's and it's wonderful. Cool. Um, Laughter League, um, yes. Laughter League. The the lion's share of what they do is a program where they take clowning into hospitals and service sick children. That's awesome. Uh, but they also have an entire performance arm um, where they bring kind of this zaniness plus a Cirque du Soleil type of feel with acts that they have very vaudevillian in their, you know, greatest show on earth type of things. Um, And it's run by uh, Dick and Tiffany Monday, who are, are clowns and their kids get into the act and have been trained as, as clowns and they are world renowned clowns, actually. I mean, they are known over Slappy and Monday are the clowns. (laughs) So, um, and they do great work and have serviced this community for a super, super long time. And literally their entire being is given. um, yeah. is what it's built on. So, um, that's them. Lip Service, um, it's a company based in Fort Worth. Um, I would say they're known for very edgy theater, um, you know, Samuel Hunter comes to mind. They do a lot of Samuel Hunter's work, um, small intermittent productions, um, but gutsy, super, super, super gutsy. Um, I'll use a personal example. Um, they did the last days of Judas Iscariot, the Gorgeous play. And my Great son was playing. Yeah, my son was 16 at the time, and they cast him as uh Judas. Yeah. Or the devil. No, he was actually Satan. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm like, no, that wasn't him because that whole monologue at the end. No, 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 no. He was Satan. Satan. Um, But gutsiness. Gutsiness. Uh, Let's see. uh, The goal of that story. Open Classical is a great classical music organization. Their goal is to bring classical music into the everyday experience. Um, Extremely high-level, symphonic-quality musicians. Um, They do, like, an open mic night at Buzz Brews in Lakewood um, on Tuesdays for classical musicians. It's an open mic night for violinists and flautists. Wow. Oh, it's great. But they also do very imaginative performances to get people to um, open up to classical music. And they bring it. To these other mediums to get people interested in classical music so they're great outcry youth theater is a youth theater company so they're kind of teaching the next generation of creatives through production model um so they're great um i keep saying they're great but they really <laughs> they're all great, <laughs> great. um there's a movement theater i don't know if you're familiar with them i have i've have heard um, of them it was Jeff and Katie. And you know, I have to I have to cite the founders because it is so originally what these founders do. One of them, Katie was an acrobat. Jeff was a fight choreographer. They met at SMU and they have built this company on telling the telling all sorts of stories through movement um, with no words. They do a lot of shadow play. It. So it's all yes. movement. But they're all they did this tremendous show that was about female boxers and they put up a boxing ring and there was actual fight choreography and dance movement. And they told this incredible, empowering story about mm-hmm. women. And their work just is is truly incredible to that's watch. great. Proper Hijinks is a small theater company here that's recently switched their model to producing only new work from Dallas area playwrights. They're actually accepting play submissions right now. So they're still trying to keep keep it moving. Um, And they're producing them in festival settings to expose these playwrights to larger audiences with the hopes of doing festivals all across the country um, to get the work out there. Um, Soul Rep Theater Company, amazing, amazing um, theater devoted to the black experience. Um, they've been around for a long time, a mix of all types of work, um, real pillars active in, in that community in not only the work they're presenting that can be identifiable, but they have the goal of economic enrichment, um, for these inner city communities through art. It's really, really amazing. very very talented group of people. Um, beautiful work, beautiful work. They had a, a a show called Dot last year, which was amazing. Um, it's um, Anika McMillan and Chris Harrod, and Chris is also a visual artist. Um, so they do they do outstanding work. Um, then we had I went back got one in the alpha alpha alphabetized way I'm doing yeah. this um, yeah. imprint imprint theater works, which um, I think they're going into their third or fourth season. Um, lot of theater professionals in town getting together, um, doing great uh, musical theater. Like they just did puffs. Um, they did murder ballad last year, bringing really exciting, exciting, fresh work here Bravely and attacking it in a way again I think with a little more freedom than what some of the bigger organizations have to concern them with Of so, oh, okay Wait, is this going to isolate a segment of my audience by bringing something? Controversial or is this going to you know upset so-so so um, Without being bound by those boundaries. They've been able to do some really exciting work
0: cool. um,
1: Yeah, and then uh, the classics theater project which is the only organization in town that is dedicated to classic theater. So um, what they do is classic theater that has uh, relevance, be it social relevance or whatever whatever we can find to identify with. They're not necessarily about restaging or adapting the work in a way to make it relevant. They're about finding the relevance in these works and presenting them in new and fresh ways to I get I love
0: when theaters are able to do that
1: yes and that's their mission and full disclosure on that one I actually started that company oh great <laughs> uh, yeah yeah with uh Joey Folsom and a gentleman named Greg Patterson who has since moved and I I'm not really involved in the daily operations um anymore but I was a co-founder of that company because um I, I, felt that was a segment of, uh, theater that was not really consistently represented Yeah, here. Not that there shouldn't be a concentration on new work. And I'm, I'm not saying that I obviously develop new work, but, um, having a theater that was dedicated to the classics, um, like this season, they're, uh, doing Moliere, um, O'Neill, you know, they've done Sam Shepard. They've done Chekhov. They've, um, so it, it, it's a nice, it, it fills in the gap. It fills in a gap that this um, development of new work and all, you know, these exciting things and being on trend with certain types of stories and certain type of, types of issues, it's nice that it has a place. Yeah. Um, and uh, they do good work. And, you know, they, they came out of the gate dedicated to paying everyone involved. Yeah. Um, they offer equity contracts. They, um, are paying all creatives, not just the actors. Right. Um, and that's hard. That's hard for a small, small company to do. And like I said, so when you're going from production to production and all of a sudden there's a production stoppage, big issue, big mm-hmm. issue. Um, and then Shakespeare everywhere is the last one. and, and, much like altered Shakespeare. They're about bringing Shakespeare to the people, um, in these exciting ways of going into bars and other things, but they also have programs that go into schools, um, and other things. And these are great, great actors who are professional actors around town who have made Shakespeare their, their stock and trade. Um, Mm -hmm. you're seeing Shakespeare Dallas, who you were seeing at the Trinity Shakespeare Festival, who are Shakespearean actors. and uh, having a lot of fun with it, but also making it fun for people. So, whew. That's, that's awesome. Like, yeah. Jeez, <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. I didn't really have to look at my notes or anything. Yeah, <laughs> so good I, good I point, feel right? very
0: good. Uh, that all made me feel great about myself. Because I've been out here less than a year, and I'm like, oh, I've worked with that person. Oh, I know that person. Oh, um, good. Yes, no, great. that's great. I'm like, yes, I'm
1: doing great. Okay, so <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Okay, so you've been here about a year. Yeah. What is your general take as an actor as to the you know the process here? Um, what's available to you? Are is what being offered is the work something like, oh, wow. Yeah, I would really love to play that part, play that role or be involved.
0: Yes. Uh, it's funny you say that because I went from being in LA and the structure and the call to casting is very organized and very black and white. And this is how much you're going to get paid. And this is where you need to show up. Do, 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 And it's very fast moving uh, versus out here. It's like, hey, your audition is in April. But you're not going to hear from us until August. Oh, oh, yeah, and I,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Um, that, But that is definitely a complaint. But the, <laughs> I will give that up because my auditions in LA were like, okay, we want you to walk in and you're a corn dog, and you're a corn dog in the microwave, <laughs> and you're dancing, and it's like, yeah, you're like, but what does this have to do with recording? I'm desire. like, I am thousands of dollars in debt to do this. Great. <laughs> Um, so the, I love the work out here. I love the Dallas scene. It's yeah. I mean, I think just looking at that representation of the list that you just gave me, it's old and established, but it's also experimenting and new and young at the same time. So I, I'm really happy to be here. It's I grew really I grew good- up here, but it's kind of my first time being back as an adult.
1: Yeah. It's a rich, it's a really rich landscape. And that's what people don't realize like out in LA. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with theater 68, that was Ronnie Marmos theater out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, so I'd spent a lot of time with that theater that was brought the Lenny Bruce show and we brought Jessica's show out there and I was literally there for two months. Um, and it is interesting because that's a, a people don't get that about Dallas. I'm like, no 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 you don't understand how many theaters we have yeah. and what is out there, you know and and in the business you'll hear it said that Dallas is a flyover city it's a flyover city meaning it's not someplace you stop mm. for the culture and that's where I go back to why I've dedicated so much of my time for getting our artists and our work out because it's the only way it's going to come back in. Yeah. It's the only way people are going to start to take notice is yeah. we got to go out, to bring in it. And, and it's, it's, it's frustrating to yeah. me. Yeah. That's funny. You say so that issue. Yeah,
0: yeah. My, my husband did Utah Shakespeare festival and someone that he works with for a summer messaged him and was like, Hey, you're in Dallas. I keep hearing a lot about Dallas. Like yeah. be honest. How do you like it? And he's like, yeah. yes, come on, let's go.
1: Yeah. But that's what's so frustrating about it to me. And this is a huge soapbox issue, Soapbox issue. I have, we are a city that will bring in actors from other places rather than hiring our own. Mm-hmm. We are a city that will stop everything for whatever national tour is coming in and give it all the attention And all the coverage. And meanwhile, we have all of this going on. Yeah. And I'm like, it should be about getting it out. Yeah. It should be about getting it out. And, you know, that's kind of always been my soapbox little thing is if I can do something to do that. If I can do something to get it out. Or, you know, while I'm sitting there running for nine months off Broadway, everyone I talk to is going to know where I'm from. Mm-hmm. How I got here, um, if I'm doing interviews, I always mention it. If I you know it's it's there's no better way to attract the attention than to you got to show it. yeah, you know? and that's why that's why I'm like, I think that the blessing in disguise of all of this is what we can do digitally now, as yeah. far as getting our content out to people. And I really want theater companies here in town. If you're listening, um, To think about that. Don't just think about marketing what you've got out there to the same old people in Dallas, you know, start using good digital marketing strategy to pick up audience from everywhere because you can now. Yeah. Like, right now is when you can do that. Yeah. Do it. Like, you know, um, and hopefully some of the funding we raise goes towards those streaming offerings and, marketing them well and getting attention and paying people for doing them because right now, I don't think a ton of people are getting paid that you're seeing doing these readings and doing these things. They're all trying to just keep it alive.
0: Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what is the, what is your goal for
1: small change, big help? And how long do we have? The goal is $24,000 which would give each one of these organizations fifteen hundred dollars. And how I came up with that number was fifteen hundred would get them in the game as far as renting space mm-hmm. when everything gets back to normal, and there's going to be a tremendous rush on available space at that point. Yeah, um, it would be enough to. There were a lot of companies who were about to start a pay cycle of people who were working on the next thing, like your designers and the people who come to work first on a. On a project, your director, your whatever, it would be enough to cover those issues. Um, it would be enough to cover rights fees for an entire run of something. It would be enough to um, be able to pay people right off the bat when the all clear sounds. So it wasn't. It's not an arbitrary number. It's like literally this would can make or break right these companies. Like, it can make that much of a difference. It could be the difference between shuttering or staying open. Um, So I set the goal at 30 days simply because that's another problem these organizations are coming up against. And that's these grant processes, these relief processes are long. You're not getting money the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's great if you're if you're doing these things and you qualify and you get it in six months from now, you get a check. But it's not really helping right now. Yeah. So um, it's lofty. It's lofty to say I want to do this in 30 days, but I also think it's essential because what I have the ability to do then is turn around and get it to people automatically. Like there wasn't a lengthy process for them to qualify with me. There wasn't applications. I didn't need to see their financials. I didn't need to. No, there wasn't all of that. And so what I'm hoping, hoping is it streamlines the process a little bit. So, yeah, they have it. Here you go. You know, let's, let's get you to a place where you're not worried about closing. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying this is going to pave the way for your entire future, but at least there's that.
0: Very cool. Well, this is such yeah. a great idea. Do you have any advice for... Actors, or for new producers, or up-and-comers
1: in this yeah. in this market. Um, Whoo! Uh, I I will fall back on the advice that I mentioned earlier from my mentor. And if you haven't seen the movie The Million Dollar Arm, watch it. It's great. It's John Hamm. Hey. Not bad looking at John <laughs> for a couple hours. Yeah. Uh, but the, really, the the thing that I think is the biggest difference maker is what happens when you get the no. And the fact, if you can look at it like, that means not yet. That means I haven't told my story well enough yet. How do I do that? And I think it applies to anyone in this business. I think it applies to your audition. I think it applies to the producer out there trying to get a project off the ground and make money. I think it applies to anyone trying to get anywhere, honestly. But also I'll fall back on something. Uh, Joey Folsom was teaching a workshop um, for Funhouse. And he said something, and the way he said it to the kids really made a lot of sense to me in kind of the same vein. And he said, your job, and he was talking more about film and, and TV and commercial acting. Uh, your job is not to get cast. Your job is to give your best audition. Because when you walk out of that room, there are so many other concerns that have absolute... it could be they hired an actor that's six feet tall and you're five, four, and it just ain't gonna work. Yeah. Like there's so many other things, but it, it, it all plays back to that not yet. You just yeah. haven't yet. And I, I think that that would be the best advice I, I can give is, you know, get- I, yes,
0: I got to sit in, so when I was in, LA, I got to um know the casting director at South Coast Repertory in Orange County really well. And I was an audition reader for her one day. So it was me, the casting director, and the director and a guy what show was it? I think it was Sense and Sensibility. And they had already cast, I don't know the show off the top of my head. They had already cast there's two male romantic leads that pair off with the sisters. One of them, she had already cast that was a white man. And another white man came into the audition for the other part. And she said, he was great, but I cannot, but all of her sisters were people of color. And she said, I cannot paint this picture of the white man coming away to take, take these women. And so I'm not going to cast him. And I was like, what a great
1: lesson. I just saw that yeah, sometimes. No, it- yeah, it's fascinating. Like, and I, I, I've had the same experiences as I started to cast shows in other markets and things, and was sitting behind the table and seeing the thought processes that were going down. I was just like, "Wow, yeah, absolutely." And, nothing and to do with, what yeah, this because,
0: <laughs> because he gave a great audition, he'll get nope. called in for the next one. And I yeah, was just like, this is this is a great lesson for me to have right now.
1: It is, it it, it is, and it's funny. You know, my son's an actor, and uh, poor poor kid. He <laughs> had just he just moved to New York. Okay, uh, and was there for three months before all this happened. Yeah, so like, want to talk? I mean, that was a massive derailment. Um, but you know, and and God love him. He he loves stage work. I'm <laughs> just like, wow, kid, Yeah you like to make it tough on yourself, don't you? But you know, it's interesting because he's grown up with, with a perspective, um, from a producer standpoint too. And, and he has a very level head about his career and rejection. Yeah. Um, And I, I would love for all artists to understand that, that rejection isn't necessarily a rejection of you. It's not a rejection of Your particular play you're writing, or your whatever, you know, so much has to do with the market and and what makes money. And like you said, who was already cast Mm -hmm. and the picture that's trying to be painted, and all of these things. And and I just I think that would be my advice is just to keep all that you know in sight.
0: That's great. Well, this has been such a great chat. I feel really fired up. About good, like good. staying strong and keeping it keep keep the hustle awesome.
1: Going. Awesome, awesome. Um yeah, so <laughs> I, I think the podcast is phenomenal. Great, um, thank you. It's about time somebody <laughs> did it. Um <laughs> so good for you. And you know, it'll be interesting to to hear how you progress in this artistic community like how you're doing and your story and making it personal to you in some sort of way because that's interesting
0: you know that's sweet thank you so much i really appreciate it
1: all right well thank you for having me on it's um small change big help so you can just go directly to gofundme and type that in and we're the first thing that pops up um like i said we'll take two bucks actually tuesday is going to be two dollar tuesday um so uh, yeah so for those of us who can't write the hundred dollar check to um north texas giving day come give us two dollars so that's
0: great awesome. <laughs> yeah. thank you so much bryn i will let you go and okay thank you so much. and we'll talk soon sounds good bye bye all right, friends, that was Bren Rapp. If you want to contribute to this amazing fundraiser and make a big difference to these theater companies, type in GoFundMe, small change, big help into Google. It's the first thing that pops up. So easy. Okay, y'all, have a great rest of your week. Stay safe, wear a mask, and go tell your friends about this podcast. Okay, bye-bye.